There's nothing like uh, perseverance and sticking with it. It's one of my big inspirations. 21 and a half years, almost 22 years at 37 Signals now. So, um, yeah, I can yeah. relate. You guys have done an amazing job. And in a world where the temptation must have been dangled in front of you hundreds of times by a greedy VC and being able to just maintain your course, I think is fantastic. There was a lot of temptation in the early days. And then thankfully, we kind of escaped that. And then once you realize what it looks like, what that temptation actually entails, and to some degree, how little there is in it, sort of after the fact, uh, it becomes a lot easier to reject or work around sort of future temptations of, of similar sort. Well, the weird thing is, people don't look at the failure rates. They just right. look at unicorns. And yes. if you look at 3% instead of the 85% who have signed their own death warrant, no one in their right mind who wasn't emotionally attached to some weird extrinsic vision of what good looks like. In many ways, it preys on the natural human instincts that founders who end up chasing things must have this um, incredible belief in themselves that they will succeed against all sorts of odds, often because they have to some degree in, in the past. Um, yet when you zoom out and you think like, yeah, everyone thinks they're going to be the winner of the lottery because they picked their favorite number. It's like, it's just, no, they're not. <laughs> there can't be. The math doesn't work out like that. But it really preys on that self belief that all or at least most successful founders like have in spades that they believe that they actually they have all what it takes to make it to the end right yeah although quite often it may well be just an, a, a very profound manifestation of the dunning-kruger effect which i've seen quite often yeah, for sure <laughs> for sure but i mean even if you take it on, on that one it's hard to deduce always are you failing because you aren't skilled enough or are you succeeding just because you are lucky enough right like there's those two outcomes are quite frequent very skilled people fail because they didn't get the timing right or the angle right or whatever and plenty of people who are not particularly bright or competent end up succeeding because they did get those two things just right they hit the ball just at the right moment and for and us to then they think, oh, we're really good at this. We should do it again. <laughs> That's where a lot of people really fall flat on their face when they think they are a serial entrepreneur who is just full of endless good ideas and impeccable execution and therefore do not need the humility that, you know what, maybe you just got fucking lucky, which is something we've taken to heart. I mean, I've taken certainly to heart. I know Jason has too. It's like, you know what? You can't tell. You cannot tell. So I'm entirely confident or at peace, I should say, with the fact, you know what? Maybe we just did get lucky. Maybe Basecamp was a lucky shot. It had the right timing at the right thing. And we were just barely adequately competent to exploit that situation to the point that we built this uh, 20 year successful software company. Could I do it again? Maybe not. And so freaking what? Who cares? I don't have to do it again. I don't have to convince myself that I'm so good that I could do it two, three, four, five times. I'm content enough just living the one life that I've been through and going like, you know what? I don't really care whether it was luck or skill or whatever. Okay. Um, here we are. 
So today, my guest is David Heinemeyer Hansen from 37 Signals. Many of you may not be familiar with 37 Signals. It's quite a special business because instead of taking VC money, David and his partner, Jason Freed, decided that they were going to essentially bootstrap this business and grow it by building the right culture, focusing on the customer, and really stripping away the fat and the noise and the distraction. I think that's a pretty fair summary, wouldn't you say, David? Yes, and all of that in service of the most basic business fundamentals. Make more money than you spend. If you do so, you are allowed to continue without asking anyone's permission. Really? I mean, that's such an unfashionable position, making a fucking profit. Are you serious? What on earth are you thinking? Well, that is exactly the feedback we've gotten for about 20 years in this business. Now, what's fascinating is that we should be recording this just in the second time, perhaps in those 20 years, maybe third if you're generous, where our position suddenly flips and becomes the mainstream position. That suddenly plenty of VCs or, or capital providers are very focused on profitability because we're looking at an ice winter of funding ahead of us. And now all the virtues we've been preaching for 20 years come back in vogue because that extends the runway. And perhaps it ensures that these over bloated capital adventures can last a little longer until the good times reboot and start again. So it is a curious time to be speaking about these things. We've, of course, not really changed our position over the course of 20 years. We've lived this we build our company around this. We've preached this in books and blog posts and conference talks and podcast appearances. But um, suddenly to see the whole world or much of it turn in our favor on these positions is a curious moment. In fact, it's kind of alike to what happened um, with remote work. We've been working remotely for 20 plus years at the 37 Signals. We wrote a whole book about it, Remote Office Not Required in 2013. And it wasn't until 2020 that suddenly everyone else got interested in the things we've been doing for the past two decades on that topic. Because sometimes you can say the same thing year in, year out. No one perhaps gives a damn or it's a minority niche audience who, who cares about it. And then the world spins in an unexpected direction. And suddenly, the things you've been saying for the longest time appear as though they have this unique relevance to the moment, when in fact, there are fundamental principles of either business or collaboration that have been true all along, but um, haven't been forced to the forefront by the circumstances of our times. On that note, I have to say that I'm really very, very pissed off with the Medicis. The bastards got there six centuries before me, and I'm very disappointed because I've spent the last seven years trying to pull all these threads together, only to discover the Medicis got there before me with the Renaissance. The cooperative movement got there before me with the cooperative movement. And everything that I've been trying to pull together now starts uh, to make a hell of a lot of sense. And uh, what frustrates me is that as a species, we seem to be incredibly stupid. We have little pockets of brilliance, and mostly they're burnt at the stake for being heretics or ignored. And pilloried for being cowardly or whatever. But their position eventually comes right. And the long-term payoff is better all round because 
what we've created with the, the last 40 years of this uh, boom and bust, this is my fifth recession. Yeah, you know, I'm an old bastard. And this is my fifth one. And what I've realized is that if you can stay calm and you can invest in the right places at this kind of moment, you can walk out of this like a bandit. But everybody else is responding to the headline of the moment and changing strategy and direction midstream. And they're panicking. And those people who can keep their head calm and they've got a bit of a buffer because they weren't greedy in previous years, have now got pretty much the uh, entire lie of the land to themselves. Yeah, this is the spoils of um, that kind of experience and insight and whatever else have you. But I also have a tendency to look at the the long run, that if we've been operating like this for a very long time, perhaps there's some adaptive quality in it. Perhaps this is simply how it must be. And also because there are plenty of heretics and truth sayers, if you will, which is wrong. Yeah, We're never true. proven right. And that we cannot actually drive society at large on account of every person who speaks out against the status quo or about how things are, are be done. We have to validate that knowledge in a way to prove it to be true. And there are all sorts of hypotheses, particularly from within the social sciences or the dismal science of economics, that appear true in a moment. Oh, yeah, do you know what? We've all we've solved the boom and bust cycle. The business cycle will no longer fluctuate. And you can print as much money as you like. It will have no impact on inflation and all these other things that appear to be true for a short moment of time. And then the validation process of reality steps in and declares them absolutely bonkersly false. But it's very hard in advance to see that. And then it's obvious after the fact, if you just spool back time to, to the Great Recession and what kicked things off in the housing market, whenever you see a documentary about it now, really unraveling the strange, you go like, didn't everyone see this? How could you possibly just be writing out all these mortgages for people who had no um, potential of living up to their declared income or anything else like that? Whatever thread you want to pull on it, it seems very obvious in retrospect. But in the moment, it's very difficult. And that is evidenced by the fact that so few people are able to, to call it out at the moment. And then even if they do call it out, maybe they call it out too soon. If you were at the top of the hill screaming in 2003, the housing market's going to crash, the housing market's going to crash. Yeah. Do you know what? It was almost as good as being wrong when your timing is off by that much. And this is something I've learned through my 20 years of advocating various positions all the time. For example, back in 2005, we created a chat program called Campfire, which was essentially Slack. Not as good as Slack, but the fundamental idea was exactly the same. And it resonated very well with a small niche of people. And 10 years later, a different group of people come around with a better pro product, perhaps, yes, but also at a much different time and boom. It hits and it works. Or our book, uh, Remote Office Not Required from 13, I thought, oh, we're stating the obvious. We're just rehashing what everyone knows. We push that book out there and it finds a dedicated but niche following, no mainstream traction. It's not like we suddenly flip from one mode of working to the other. And then boom, 2020 happens, which is seven years later, seven years off in terms of like, when was the pivotal moment that those lessons were most keenly needed? So... I think it is always difficult, which is why this is so fascinating and interesting and fun that history is not a predictable process when you look out ahead. It seems oh so predictable when you look in the rearview mirror, though. Okay, so 
how do we get this mindset to shift where we get the right mix of people? Because I think my observation is that when organizations get to a certain level, they kind of flip from being creative and entrepreneurial to being very conservative and they'll knock ideas down. And finding that balance where you maintain that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and where people have a voice and they feel like they're doing important and meaningful work. Because that's why, you know, I think human beings seek that. And when they find it, then they give massive discretionary effort. They don't mind speaking out when they see people behaving wrongly. And they tend to congregate around a purpose or values. And people who are committed like that are exciting to work with. So then when you wake up in the morning on a Monday morning, there's a spring in your step. And your customers feel it, your suppliers feel it, your partners feel it. And if you fuck up, someone's going to tell you in no uncertain term. Whereas in places where they play it safe and they're trying not to get noticed, they they tolerate terrible behavior. And after a while, those compound. And so it starts to become part of the culture. And it erodes all the good. Because I think that's what bad money does. And when bad money comes into an organization and it's driven by greed and a short-term flip rather than what's good for the customer and good for the company and thereby good for the employees, when that the, the emphasis and the intent shifts to the exit, that's when I think things go horribly wrong. Yes, but I also think these are simply the incentives of our economy that Innovator's Dilemma that um, Christensen wrote, Clayton Christensen yeah, wrote about endlessly, is, is a diagnosis of a, of a structural process. This is simply what happens when you start out with a small innovative company and they have success and they grow into a large enterprise. Inevitably, you will entra- attract the kinds of people who are most at home in a far more conservative operation that is about protecting what already is rather than conquering new ideas or making large bets, which is one of the reasons why, even though he's not on my uh, Christmas list of of favorite people in the world, I have a a large degree of respect for the enterprise that Zuckerberg is currently pursuing with his metaverse uh, dreams. I think it's going to fail, but obviously that's just my opinion. And actually for the good of humanity, I, I hope I'm wrong, but He's trying to make this behemoth of a company do startup-like steps of pivoting. And I think that is almost impossibly hard to do, which is why it's so startling to see when it's attempted. Because almost all other companies would never, ever attempt something like that. Certainly not while they're a public company. There are some different rules for for private companies and what they can attempt. But even so, it is incredibly difficult to rejig an organization once it's reached a certain amount of scale. So I think that those uh, incentives, fundamental structural incentives, are not about the moral judgments of individual people, whether someone is is greedy or altruistic or otherwise. They're simply the product of what happens once you grow, which is one of the reasons why at 37 Signals, we've been so adamant about not growing, that in fact, I don't know of a way that we could practice the things we preach 
if we were 5,000 people or 10,000 people or 50,000 people. Um, the incentives would eventually overpower us. But we can practice the things that we preach at our scale. We're around 80 people, which even for us is, is very large. For a long, long time, we were only 40 or 50 people. And at that human scale, it is so much easier to mm, have all these qualities that we would love to have in all companies of all sizes, but are almost impossible to endow to large companies. They cannot be innovative in this way. They cannot take risk in this way. They cannot be personable in, in this way. They must be turned into bureaucracies of repeatability, which there's a way of looking at that and going like, do you know what? Maybe that's fair enough. If we could simply quarantine these large companies that have arrived at these dismal states of bureaucracy that you and I might look at and go like, ugh, boring, soul crushing, whatever, and confine them to what they did well. And like, they'll continue doing on that. Okay, so what, whatever. I think the problem really happens is when those large companies turn into either monopolies that end up distorting markets and then make it very difficult for those smaller companies to succeed on the merits of their business, or they simply just buy everyone else, right? This is what, again, to take the Zuckerberg example, he was exceptionally adept at buying both uh, Instagram and WhatsApp at these pivotal moments uh, to ensure that there was no threat to the dominance that, that he already held, not because there was some capacity within Facebook at the time to, to be innovative, because that just doesn't happen. I think we need to come to terms with the fact that for the vast majority of companies, once they reach that size, they're going to safely replicate the formula they were founded with. They're not going to change the formula. And if they try, they often actually end up with disastrous results. I mean, I used the word formally here, so I couldn't help thinking about Coca-Cola introducing new Coke yeah. back in the 80s. And it yeah. was absolutely a catastrophe, right? They swore right. never to do that again. Demonstrations. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so you have that fact where like, maybe we should just resign ourselves to the fact that innovation, new ideas, human scale principles of working simply cannot coexist with huge conglomerates, monopolies, or bureaucracies in general. And that we must find those qualities in small companies. And if we make that deduction, we should also make the deduction, do you know what? We're better off if we have more smaller companies that are thriving and doing well, rather than wish that all of the ones that we start turn into these behemoths, right? Which brings us back to the logic of venture capital. Venture capital's logic is that the only successful outcome is that you take something small and turn it into something grotesquely large, because that's what the mathematics of the setup is based on. You cannot stop at 50 people, 80 people, 150 people, if that's the right size for the problem you're solving and for the people involved that it does not compute. It does not work. The model is not going to allow that. In fact, the model is going to fight that ferociously. It's going to attack it like an immune system attacking itself. Oh, push the founders to take on more risk, take on greater stretches, even if it means killing those businesses, because the value of a business that stops at 50 or 100 people is not compatible with the model. So they would rather sacrifice. In fact, the model is built on the sacrificial approach that nine out of 10 companies should just be wound down and recycled. And then we have the one that makes it all the way through. We have the unicorn and that's going to pay for the, for the fest. And 
the mathematics of that model actually works out pretty well for at least the top 10% of venture capitalists who return more money than they take in. Again, actually a small minority. It does not work out very well for the individual company founders or the companies that are in it, right? If you were looking at your odds and going like, geez, I have a 90% chance of hitting the wall. And that's if I make it all the way to the series A round, right? Like what are my odds at the, at the outset? They're far, far worse. Those odd look, odds look atrocious. And my plea to entrepreneurs have been, do you know what? Not the only way. There are ways you have to run a business where you dramatically increase your odds of having a good outcome, not necessarily a unicorn moonshot outcome, but a good outcome. And do you know what? The difference in terms of success, as you perceive it, between having a solid outcome, creating, say, a company of 50 people that's profitable year after years, long term and all these things, or creating this unicorn um, existence. You know what? It's not that large on a bunch of really important metrics, such as financial status, right? What happens after you've made $20 million? Do you know what? The jump from 20 million to 200 to 2 billion, insignificant compared to the jump from zero to 20 million. This then makes me, because I've been uh, thinking about this problem for quite some time. And the conclusion I've come to is uh, for small businesses to build resilience and to be able to compete, they need to learn how to play nicely with one another. And um, so I've been spending a lot of time investigating the whole process of ecosystems, and we've been pulling one together. And what's fascinated me is the simplicity and the ease with which, through trusted relationships, you can book meetings for half a dozen outstanding players and put them in front of decision makers who may or may not be ready to buy now, but we're playing the long game. And we're thinking about this differently because th- this is built, this is all about trying to create resilience for the partners and create phenomenal solutions for the customers. Because what I've seen in the in the last seven years, we've seen quota attainment half whilst the explosion of over 20,000 vendors in the uh, sales enablement and MarTech space have uh, hit, the space, hit the market. And my conclusion is that everyone's been focused on the wrong end of the problem because trying to drive that scale, they've also been focused on the symptoms, not the causes of poor performance. And when you look at the outbound motions going into the cold market. On average, you got maybe a three to 5% win rate. Whereas when you get referred by someone who is trusted by both the vendor and the buyer, and they hand deliver you, you've got a 60 to 90% conversion rate. Now, when you consider what the tariff is to take a cold prospect to final stage, it makes a lot more sense to use that skill set and those resources to try and engage with people who are already trusted and known to your customers and try and get injected in half a dozen different ways. And in doing that, it means that you lower the barriers to entry automatically because you're being hand-delivered by someone who's trusted. And trust is in exceptionally short supply. I mean, tell me this, if I were to ask anyone in 37 signals why you exist 
as a business, would I get you know, 88 different answers or would I get one answer? That's a really interesting question because it's one of the things we've just been wrestling with internally for a while. This idea of whether we can distill our mission down to sort of one if not slogan, then at least one pithy line or paragraph. And I've actually been pushing back upon that because I don't think that most businesses actually have that worthy or unique of a mission. And I think that the mission statement driven companies are very rare if they are to be authentic. I often use the example of like SpaceX. They're quite clear that they want to bring humanity to become an um, interplanetary species. That's a pretty binary goal, right? Are you settling Mars or are you not settling Mars? Us, we make project management software and we make um, an email system. And we put our heart and soul into it and we come up with novel, interesting solutions. We have opinions about a billion different things. But could I boil it down to one sentence that's actually unique that would not also describe what my competitor is doing? Like we've been throwing out some internally recently, like um, uh, helping people do work more efficiently or calmly or throw any other adjectives into it, right? I actually think that a lot of what's or a lot of where the focus should go instead of trying to be unique in the definition of your vision as it pertains to the product is how you engage the work. And I think that goes exactly to what you're saying about this trust factor, that you can engage the work and your customers and your employees in completely different ways when you are 50 people, 100 people, than you can when you're 10,000. You operate in a different universe where things like personal introductions and trust actually matter and they actually carry consequence. And as a result, I think you end up with far more human businesses built on things that are closer to us as, as individuals and our aspirations. So when I look at what makes 37 Signals unique, it's often less what we produce, although I would like to believe that that's also part of it, but it's just as much as how we produce it. How are we engaging with the work? Are we get engaging with the work with the employees that we have in a sustainable, calm, long-term basis? Are we engaging with the customers that we have in a way where it's, it's, it's the longer perspective, it's exactly earning that trust such that they two years down the line would be willing to recommend us to someone else? We operate in in, in different ways. And trying to clarify that or boil that down in some sense, I think is, is really interesting. There are some people who've been doing work, for example, contrasting the unicorn way of working with the zebra way of working. And the zebra way of working is essentially this idea of the, the power that comes from being in a, in a pack or a dazzle as a, as a pack of zebras is called, a dazzle of zebras, a which dazzle. I always thought was, um, was amazing. Versus the unicorn is always this singular being right? You don't have a dazzle of unicorns. You have a, the unicorn and it's all shiny and has a horn and it's by itself. And that's, I think speaks exactly to the point you're making about these circles of trust, that those circles of trust are so much easier to build and cultivate and maintain if you're dealing with a bunch of zebras. You're dealing with a bunch of um, businesses that are not going through this steroid injection program to try to become a unicorn and might end up as these deformed beings in the in the process. So I think there's absolutely something there. I, I'm not sure it's anchored around the 
uh, finding of the mission for the product that you're producing. Although, of course, you should have some idea of of what it is. But whether that is fully unique or not, I'm not sure is the um, sort of critical factor. And perhaps the fact that our approach to work, these this trust engagement, is not unique is why it works. That there is a greater opportunity for small to medium-sized businesses to collaborate and to work together and to lean on each other's circles of trust um, because they are trying to, to do things in, in similar ways that are not necessarily earth-shakingly novel, exactly because they're not these individual unicorns who, who end up just um, on their totally own uh, trajectory and path. Well, I think what's really interesting here and I'm curious is what do you actually measure and what are the uh, the KPIs that your salespeople and your marketing people and your management are held to? Because I suspect they're not quite the same as within a unicorn. Certainly not. I think the first thing for us is that we are really interested in being an ongoing operation. So we are interested interested in being profitable. That is really the baseline above all other baselines for us, that if we're not profitable, we're not sustainable. And therefore, we're dependent on the good graces of other people's money, which is a difficult thing to, to sustain. Uh, and also not a thing we're interested in sustaining. So we're also a little unique in the sense that we've never had salespeople. Um, our marketing department has often been described as everything we do. Even though we are putting in uh, some additional structures now and we are doing a more diligent job on marketing, we still don't have explicit salespeople, which is perhaps not so much an idiosyncrasy of, of just us as it is a reflection of the kind of business that we run. We sell Basecamp, our project management tool, for a pretty low fee. We don't chase big accounts. So if we're only making 50 or $100 a month from an individual customer, very real limits to how much sales time we can invest in something like that versus the competition that might be chasing far bigger deals, closing $10,000 a month deals or something like that. So some of our circumstances have, have forced us into this, but so too has this adherence to simply running a long-term sustainable business and focusing on, to some degrees, business aesthetics. Like I am really interested in things like revenue per employee. This idea that you can have a very lean and efficient business, especially in software, that is able to reach and serve a mass audience of customers because you're doing it in a programmatic way so that we don't have to have individual conversations with every single customer that we have. We sign up, what is it right now, 4,500 new companies a week to try Basecamp. We would be a very different company if we had salespeople trying to engage with all of those uh, leads. Yeah. So that doesn't work for us, but I think these um, the the KPI of running a business in a way where we want to go to work every day, we're giving our employees the autonomy and the room to pursue mastery and and some rough framing of purpose, even if it's not a pithy mission statement, a single line. There's a framing of a purpose of hey, you're working at a at a small business here that's helping other small businesses su succeed. 
that gives something that to me is far more important. So the KPI factors, like the individual numbers matter less. It's not that we don't look at them at all. It's that they don't drive the business in the way I think it would do at a venture capital backed startup that has these very specific milestones that they have to hit, right? The biggest of all usually being the $100 million in yearly um, revenue because that opens the IPO window. So a lot of startups are so singularly driven by moving the top line revenue number, regardless of whether they're burning $300 million in, in expenses to get to, to make $100 million, regardless of whether the model itself really has any serious prospects of turning profitable, it's based around these very singular and misleading, in my opinion, business KPIs, because that's what enables the transfer of, of equity, which is really what many of these companies are. They are financializations of companies. Yeah. They're not always, or the primary purpose isn't to, to create a great company. The, the primary purpose is to create a great security that can be yeah. sold to someone else. It, it, it's something that's going to be flipped because the, the way it works is series A sells to series B, there's a payout. Series B sells to series C, series A and B get a payout. Series C sells to series D, uh, series A starts to think we're really fucking good at this, so we've got to do, do this again. So they raise another fund. And then the whole Ponzi scheme starts to fuel it that way. Now, your challenge here is this. In an organization that is not focused on growth, I'm really curious about the role of your middle management. What is the function? What are the day-to-day responsibilities of your middle managers? And what kind of where do they feel the pressure, if any? So the first answer to that is that for the longest time, we barely had any. In part, as a function of being a small company, when you're a company of 40 or 50 people, you simply just don't need a lot of middle management. Now, we are slightly larger, and we have some degree of, of middle management in but very few of those are tied up on these specific business metrics. They're tied up more in the sense of how do we ensure a smooth running engine, right? Like it's, it's kind of like um, you, you hear a, a car, right? Like is, it, is it running crisp? You can almost just hear whether it's running crisp. How many RPMs is it pulling right now? Is it pulling 6,000? Is it pulling 7,000? I don't know. There's a dial inside the car that can tell you that. But you can tell whether it runs smoothly, cleanly. And you can also tell if it doesn't, if it's sputtering or hacking away at it. And I think we've generally had a philosophy of listening to the engine tune rather than being so focused on like, what exactly are we at 6,250 RPMs or are we at 7,100? So what we try to measure things on instead is things like return on effort. Do we feel like the initiatives we're kicking off and pursuing bringing us a return back on something that matters. Does this feel like, okay, we we did this new feature in, in Basecamp and we spent so and so long on it. Was that proportionate? And that is one of those gut takes that take time to cultivate and, and really build up. But after 20 years building software, ours is quite refined. It is quite clear to us whether there's a good return on effort, whether the initiatives we've kicked off seem like they're meaningful. Are they moving whatever they need to move, even if it's just our own satisfaction with the product, a lot of the things that we work on, um, a return in our satisfaction of feeling like we have a better product. Can I measure that necessarily directly all the line down to additional signups and so on? No, because the, 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 the work of attribution is almost impossibly hard when it comes to product development. And in fact, you can be steered blind into 
trying to map it and you could be steered far astray trying to simply just follow like what works can we get the right metrics here can we do you know what it's so difficult to tell this feature we've implemented maybe it's not hugely used but maybe it's an aspirational feature that people would love to use they're signing up to use the product because it's there we have something in Basecamp, for example, called Hill Charts, which is a way of tracking projects in terms of progress on this model of uphill or downhill, mm -hmm. which is a bit of an idiosyncratic way of tracking progress, right? Like usually it's pie charts, how many to do, oh, so check off. Or, exactly, something else like that. This Hill Chart um, approach is really novel. It's incredibly powerful if you learn how to use it. It's something that we use extensively inside the company, but it's not the thing that everyone is signing up and then the first thing they grab and start using. No, they'll grab things like the to-do list. They'll grab things like the message board or, or even the, the chat function. But the number of conversations I've had with customers who view that feature as aspirational, that that's one of the reasons why they picked Basecamp in the first place is because we're not just a run of the mill, because we actually have opinions about how to work and we can teach you something about your own work processes. We're not just a place you implement them, right? We're trying to level up your organization so that it becomes more effective so that fewer things fall through the cracks. And some of that involves perhaps teaching you some new tricks, not just giving you all the things that you ask for. Now, in that process, can I tie back how much economic value was tied up into the hill charts? I cannot. Does that mean that I would not want to build features like hill charts in the future? Absolutely not, right? This is part of the satisfaction of building software in this way that is not written with the tyranny of metrics. There are uh, some serious tyrannies of metrics going on in a lot of companies, particularly these days, because we've been sucked into the illusion that we can measure everything because performance marketing has given us this illusion that we can not just measure, but attribute almost everything. And in some degrees, it does work. It's not like there's nothing in it, but it can engulf an organization to the point that they think that this is the North Star. This is how we should uh, lead things. I mean, one of the famous examples from, from Google was when they tested, what was it, 128 different shades of blue. Like, which one did just trigger the right thing? And like, I would hate to work in an organization that would have to test 128 shades of blue just to decide on what color the button should be, right? That's just not it for me. Again, that does not mean I don't care about the numbers. I care sometimes intensely about the numbers and I'll go into all of them. And some of the numbers I care um, just as much as about uh, as, as how much money we were making is how much money we're spending. Because as I said, the um, sort of function here, the survival function is profitability. And that function can be tuned either from revenue or it can be tuned from expenses. And I think where we have done a very unique job compared to all of our competitors, is to have that focus on the expenses as well. Jason, my business partner, recently posted this thing on LinkedIn about a bunch of the competitors like Asana and Smartsheet and a bunch of the others. And they had all of them at least over a thousand. Some of them have several thousand employees. All of them have about the same number of individual customers as we do, about 100,000 to 150,000 in, in most cases. We have 80 employees. I'm not saying these scenarios and setups are completely comparable. They're not. When you're chasing huge enterprise deals, you need a much larger structure and blah, blah, blah. But it does give you some sense that like, do you know what? Uh, the scales can be very different. 
And you can end up with dramatically differently designed organizations if you approach this problem in a different way. And particularly if you approach it from a business fundamentals um, perspective where revenue has to exceed cost. And that teaches you some, in my opinion, really useful habits, really useful habits. What's really very, very scary, I would have thought for many, um, is that for the last 12 years, um, since the last uh, bubble burst, there's no one in the uh, SaaS space, barring you and a handful of others, who's really been focused on profit. So you've got leadership that doesn't know how to make a profit. You've got management who don't know how to make a profit and salespeople who don't know how to make a profit. And marketing will always end up spending a large amount of money. And the, the problem with all of this is that everything that made you a hero in the old uh, revenue at any cost when money is cheap and you can take 18 months, three years to make a profit. You can't do that now. When uh, you know Sequoia pulled the plug four months ago and said, you've now got to make a profit. Well, you, you know, if for the last 12 years you've been pulling deals forward and uh, you know, doing fire sales at the end of the quarter, everything that you've done in the past turns you into a villain in the new model. So I would have thought that the stress levels in these organizations must be absolutely going through the roof. I think it's a very difficult time and it's a very difficult transition, particularly because it's been so long. I'm actually just preparing a piece on this now about how uh, hard times make strong companies. And we've had very easy times and we've ended up with some very weak companies, very weak in terms of habits, very weak in terms of resilience, as you say, very weak in capacity of, of running a, a basic business that can balance the books and making the transition now, particularly because we've just hit the high point. Last quarter of 2021 was the highest or largest amount of venture capital injected into startup companies at the biggest valuations of the past 20 years. So we've literally just gone from the very, very peak of the mountain, and now we're crashing down at an absolutely head-turning pace. It jumped off a cliff, right? Many of the valuations of these companies are down 70, 80, or even 90%. I mean, it's absolutely just horrific. And suddenly you're finding yourself at this new bottom, and you go like, what the hell are we going to do now? And to turn that around, to turn that mode of operation and those habits around from this prolific spending, where it does not matter whether we're spending $3 to buy one, when it does not matter how many people we're hiring, whether they're making good progress or none, because we're chasing these kinds of securities metrics, right? Like, do we have to write growth curve? Do we have to write year over year? Or do we have to write a headcount? Suddenly all those things that were assets, they become liabilities. And now what do you do? I think it's, we're looking into some very tough years. That is, if this ends up taking years, no one knows, but there's plenty of uh, projections out there saying like, it's not like this is going to be over in three months. It's not like we're just at the tail end of the, of the downturn here. No, well, we're, we're at the beginning of the downturn, and the predictions are that 24 is going to be the uh, the uh, depth of it. And yes. then we've got at least a couple of years. Now, history has a tendency to repeat. Like I said, fifth time round, the first three were terrifying. Last one, interestingly enough, not so bad, because I knew what I was doing. This time, I've never been more positive, because... There is plenty of opportunity. Recession does not mean the world stops. 30% of the population doesn't suddenly evaporate. 20% of the aluminium deposits don't suddenly vaporize. 
what happens is there's a collective mental condition, which is we're going to be miserable and pessimistic for a while, and we're going to batten down the hatches, play it safe. And in this market, that is the worst possible position to take, especially when you're going to start cutting back the flesh and uh, the bone of things like marketing, sales, and recruitment, and training and development. These are the things that we should be really doubling down on, and especially doubling down on spending more time speaking to actual living, breathing customers who are going to tell you what you need to do next. So I'm really curious, how much time do you guys spend and you as CTO spend talking to customers? We get an absolutely enormous amount of feedback through all these channels that we have. I mean, both Jason and I um, write a lot online and, and get no end of feedback to, to all of that. And when we launch, we get no end of feedback to all of that. And when you have well over 100,000 customers, whenever you change anything you get an absolute mountain of uh, of feedback back to that so crucial to listen to that but also at the same time you got to be a little careful uh, the methodology that we use when we pursue a new product is essentially to put blinders and ear muffles on that the version one of whatever we make is made entirely on the intuition and gut feeling that we've developed over the past 20 years. That is the only repeatable process that we've found to be able to come up with something where you're not just listening to customers tell you that they want a faster horse. Because that is a trap that's very easy to fall into. And if all they want is a faster horse, no one is going to come up with the automobile. So if you're interested in coming up with automobiles in a world of fast horses, you have to be able to also isolate yourself from that a little bit. When you then have that automobile, when you then have that breakthrough, absolutely let them tell you what they don't like about the steering. Let them tell you what they don't like about the saddle. Let them tell you all those things and let you be informed by all that. So I do think that that's, uh, that's crucially important. But I also think to the point you made that now is a time of opportunity, and it is, but not for everyone. If you're so far over the ledge, you're so far leveraged, you're so far over your skis that the slightest bump in, in the hill going down is going to throw you off balance, you're in trouble. And you actually do need to do some of these drastic things. You do need to do some of these drastic cuts or redirections or reorganizations or whatever else that you need to do because you simply will not survive otherwise, right? Now, if, as you said at the beginning, you had been prudent, and you had a buffer, and you had saved some for winter, now you don't need to freak out. In fact, as you say, and as Buffett would say, uh, be greedy when everyone else is fearful, and be fearful when everyone else is greedy. So that's a good instinct to have if you have the, I was about to say it's luxury, but that seems perverse because it's actually the opposite of luxury, right? Like it's not conspicuous consumption to keep something in your pocket. It's the opposite of that. So if you follow that tack, you may very well be looking into some easier terrain, easier to find the good deals, easier to find the good opportunities. And the same thing too, if you're starting a company right now, like we often talk so much about all these companies who might be in trouble because they've gotten over their skis, but for the kind of companies that are starting right now from a far more prudent perspective, they only know today. Today's environment is their environment. They're not trying to adapt to it. They start in it, which is why some of the strongest companies ever built were started in recessions. When you start yeah. under those conditions, you really learn the prudent good habits of running a business because you have no choice. And if you do so in an environment where, A, there's actually possibility of hiring someone because not everyone uh, has three offers at crazy 
salaries outstanding and there's a little bit more um, sort of opportunity to hire someone there, even if you haven't already secured a huge monopoly that allows you to pay these gigantous wages or uh, the, the marketing um, spots are suddenly open because all the other companies that were out over their skis, they're suddenly pulling abruptly back. Rates fall way down. Now you have two things going in your favor. You have a far more amenable marketing environment. And you have a far more amenable hiring environment. So a lot of companies who are interested in becoming quote unquote real businesses or running a business on the sort of fundamentals that work, this is a better time, not a worse time. This is a better time. You will be better set to compete, to deal with um, competitors who are not just throwing money into a, a, a fire um, who actually have to figure out, oh, do you know what? Um, those uh, those ads, they actually have to return. And we can't just like uh, say, well, they're going to return in the way that uh, LTV is going to be unlimited because of course we're never going to lose these customers. This was the joke of Groupon back in the day that they didn't want to book their marketing expenses because um, they viewed them as like one-time investments that once they had acquired the customer, they would never have to do anything with that customer again because they would just all accumulate, which is one of the more fanciful flights of uh, accountings I've ever seen. But if uh, if you're not like that and you have taken this or starting now with a more prudent approach to, to running your startup, you should absolutely look at now as a moment of opportunity. And if your company looks like it's about to go off the cliff and you're thinking about starting up, probably a really good time. I've seen so many good little businesses start during recession. And like David said, they had to learn to be prudent and they grew slowly but sensibly and they focused on their customer. They focused on making sure when they hire, they hire well and they look after their people. So I am really very curious as well about how you guys treat data because most organizations seem to be obsessed with capturing lots and lots and lots and lots of data and have no idea how to use any of it. And the net result is all they end up doing is confusing themselves. So how do you look at data and what uh, data really matters to you? Very little. We are not in any way, shape, or form a data-driven organization. That does not mean we don't do deep dives on data. It does not mean we occasionally use data to, to settle difficult questions that we, we don't feel like we have any basis of settling otherwise. But it's not our first port of call. If When we're designing Basecamp or Hay, uh, figuring out where to go next, we're not looking at detailed user statistics of how people are using this thing or, or, or the other thing. We're driving it on uh, a trust in our own product design capabilities that we are designing the products in a great extent to be awesome for us and also responsive to the feedback that we get from customers. But more often than not, that feedback comes in terms of anecdotes. So you are your smart. number one customer. Oh, for sure. And it's not even close. We live in Basecamp. Basecamp is the operating system for 37 Signals. Jason and I in particular then live a part-time, let's say this is our summer house in Hay, our email software. We have built a project management solution and an email solution it is exceptional for us because this is how we know how to gauge the quality. Now, the market will also gauge the quality by whether it buys or not, but we've generally found that if we build something we love, 
that is exceptional for us, we will find an audience of like-minded people who have similar preferences as, as we do. And we find that that is generally an easier way to develop something great, something novel, something interesting than to try to run it through a bunch of focus groups. Whether those focus groups are actually real life or the focus groups are sort of data derived or, or whatever will you will. So the, the main data we look at is, is the business healthy? Are we making more money? It's not complicated. It's not wild analysis. Again, it's not the only thing. We occasionally do run A-B tests, particularly on the marketing side of things, particularly on our, our website. We've even run A-B tests on pricing. We, it, it, it's not an either or, but I do think there's a core of how you define your business, right? Like a lot of businesses will proudly try to proclaim that they are data-driven, that they don't make irrational, subjective evaluations of things. No, they make objective scientific determinations as to which way to go, which just means that they're utterly deluding themselves because in almost no circumstances can you hold all other variables constant. When it comes to product development, when it comes to customer behavior, you do not get to hold all other variables constant in the vast majority of cases. So you do have to rely on your gut, your faith, your product instincts. Again, let them be informed, let it all percolate, but don't delude yourself into thinking that you can find the answer in data. So we actually don't collect very much data. We also have all sorts of principles around the privacy of data, which works very well with this instinct. We actually delete all log files of usage and so forth that we use for forensics after 30 days. A lot of companies would be aghast of like, what do you mean you're throwing out the gold after only 30 days? How can you do these long run calculus or analysis on, on usage trends and so forth? And then we go like, do you know what? Um, we're not doing that anyway. So we'd rather not have the liability to hold all this data on hand. We'd rather sell a product to customers who perhaps also in part care about that they're not being tracked up the wazoo. This is particularly true for, hey, our email product, where it's even built into the functions of it. I don't know if, if all your marketers will appreciate this, but the notion of spy pixels in emails is something that has really rubbed me the wrong way. This idea that someone who sends me an email can know exactly when I opened that email, where I was when I opened that email, how many times I opened that email, how much time I spent reading that email. And then in some cases, when it's particularly gross, follow up to harangue me about the fact that I did any of those things. Oh, I saw you uh, read my email last week. Can we book a call, right? I was always just deeply offended about those mechanics because I thought, you know what? Most people don't know this is going on. They do not know that they're being spied upon just by opening an email. We have some understanding that if we browse the internet, yeah, there's going to be a bunch of trackers and there's cookie banners, all sorts of stuff to warn us about that. But for email, there's not. So we build a solution in Hey that not just detects these, but names and shames them. Like if you send me an email and it has one of those dastardly spy pixels in it, it will literally say like, hey, this email included this specific spy pixel. This is the information they could get out of that. Do you want to block that person or not? So our approach to data is a lot focused on too on what do we want to be subjected to, right? Like I'd like to run the business in the same way that I want to use other people's businesses. I want to be, I want to treat my customers as I want to be treated as a customer. So we try to let that inform that golden principle, inform our tactics and not just base our tactics on like a very narrow definition of what works. I think particularly with performance marketing, you can get into a really dark place if you just follow the carrot of what works. Well, the, what um, really uh, amazes me is how often 
um, those companies that claim they're data-driven uh, become data-obsessed, and then they change on the basis of today's headline data, the strategy. And so they confuse everyone. They confuse the customer, they confuse the salespeople, and they send out a terrible, uh, inconsistent message. Um, okay, so I want to cycle back to the early philosophy, because you and Jason clearly must have come up with this decision not to go down uh, the investment route and not to go down the growth route. So what informed that philosophy and what? why did you come to that conclusion? Well, first I'll say is when we say we didn't go down the growth route, that means we didn't go down the growth route in expenses. Does not mean we did not grow, go down the growth route in revenues. In fact, I think one of the great privileges that we've had over the many years is that in the United States, a company accounts are private. And I have laughed my ass off repeatedly at the guesses of what our revenue was and the sometimes several orders of magnitude, those guesses were off. So this is part of this realization that like, do you know what? We're making software. There are in many cases, few incremental costs. Not in all cases, email is actually one of the ones that does have some incremental cost. It is actually surprisingly expensive to, to mm. serve email. Um, in other parts of the businesses or businesses we've developed, the main thing you're spending on is the R&D. You're making the machine once and then making the machine run is comparably incredibly cheap. So it really divorces this thing of how many customers can you serve from a certain employee base or... Um, how much revenue can you pull in at a given stage of, of your company? But put all that aside, both Jason and I went through the original dot-com boom and bust cycle. And I think that left the kind of marks on us that someone who, I mean, it's not quite the same. You got to be a little bit careful with these parallels. But anyone who went through the Great Depression have this thing of, of or, or Second World War, like the deprivation of, of that and seeing what happens with that leaves some scars that you carry forward until the end. You just have certain things about turning off the lights or saving on the butter or whatever it is that you might take. If you want to read about this, read The Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howe. And they describe how generations get affected by the economic phase of the cycle that they're born into and how that affects their decisions and then their relationship with the next generation and their relationship with money and so on. It's a fascinating read. It's it's super fascinating. And obviously the dot-com boom and bust was a microscopic version of that compared to those uh, grand tragedies. But uh, it still had the same dynamics that had left a mark that uh, both Jason and I worked for these venture capital-backed companies. And we saw the waste. We saw the insanity. We saw the invented spreadsheets of hockey stick growth and so forth. And then we saw it all come crumpling down. And it left a real mark on us and said, like, you know what? I don't want to run a business like that. I don't want to work like that. We can do this in a different way. And we can do it in a far more measured way, in perhaps to some degree a slower way, certainly in terms of how quickly we grow the the headcount of the company. And we were just like marked with that. And I think that that mark has just retained on because we've also seen then it be reinforced by the fact that this works. Do you know what? If you run a software business prudently, not only can it be a good business, it can be a great business. As we talked about, software is a, you built the machine one and once and it's very expensive, but then it's surprisingly cheap to keep it operating. And you can really get a, a wonderful business out of that. 
And you don't need to chase having 10,000 people. You don't need to chase being a unicorn to fulfill all the dreams of independence or aspirations about how many customers you touch or the influence that you can have, or even the monetary value you can extract out of it. If you're a profitable software company with good margins for 20 years, there's a fair bit left over. Right? <laughs> it doesn't, it just, it's a, it's a, satisfying thing to to simply see the um the ways of compound interest over time right and you can do that if you have the 20-year perspective which of course we didn't have on day one but we eventually developed that you know what we should run this with the idea that this business is ours to keep for the next 20 years we're not building this to flip it so chasing vanity metrics that are often in direct opposition to fundamental metrics doesn't just not make sense, it's actively harmful. So we will not do those things. We will make it as though we are quote unquote stuck with this business. That it is ours to keep until we're done. And if that is the case, I think you just end up building a far nicer place because you have to inhabit it, it right? Like you can't just put up some sort of bat scaffolding and, and whatever, just make something that looks good for showing. And then you go like, well, now it's the next person's problem, you go like, no, do you know what? We should build something proper. We should build something that's going to last of good materials or good foundation, proper ethics that we can stand being around in for the next 20 years. I have a particular interest in the concept of wicked problems. And uh, someone shared a visual of all these different uh, issues. And what struck me is that at least two thirds of the wicked problems are driven by the financial system essentially sucking most of the resources into the hands of a tiny handful. And I'm no socialist by any stretch. However, what I am conscious of is that a system that is consistently pulling out more than it's putting in and the fundamental resources upon which the system depends, the human beings who are the cash crop that pay the taxes that and buy the goods and all that sort of stuff. History demonstrates very clearly that it ends very badly for people who are too greedy. But I suspect what happens is they think, oh, it'll never happen to me, or we can hire the security, but the security turns on them. You, know, you only have to look at the French Revolution. Yeah, you know, that was what 74 years of terror or 64 years of terror, and the French just were stopped in their tracks. And I look at the current setup. And what strikes me is if we did a little bit of simple tax reform and we stopped making growth the primary driver and we made contribution, which again, I know it makes me sound like a fucking tree-hugging, bunny-cuddling hippie, but if there was a way to shift the economics towards making contribution a more attractive metric and the thing that drives this in my head is I look at countries like Denmark that have a high degree of happiness. There is a very strong social security. You tax to the hilt. My friend uh, in Finland got done for speeding and he got done on the basis of his income. So that I think is really interesting. But where I'm headed with this is there's actually some really simple solutions if we look upstream at the causes of these problems. Most of the problems of complexity that have flywheeled down uh, through the sales and marketing motion are created by 
this drive for extraordinary, unhealthy growth that doesn't create good fundamentals. And the net result of that is that you end up with unhappy customers who churn. And if, if you're just at 15% churn rate, and in a moment, I am going to ask you for your churn rate, and I'm sure if you want me to tell me to mind my own business, feel free. But 15% churn rate means in three years, you have to replace 49% of your customers. That cannot be serving shareholder value. High staff turnover is fucking expensive. Hiring them is expensive. Training them is expensive. Paying them is expensive. Managing and running them is expensive. Firing them is expensive. And then replacing them and then trying to play catch up because they missed the quota is expensive. So none of that seems to serve the shareholder. Then I look at um, the uh, revenue at any cost. And, and that means you're giving away profit. I've, I've worked with clients who've been pressured by their management, who've been pressured by their leadership, who've been pressured by their shareholders, to give 80% discounts. And if they waited two weeks, they make another 600 grand. I mean, seriously? Do you know how hard it is to make a pipeline that's going to deliver 600 grand in profitable revenue? I mean, Jesus. So my, my question is this. If we were really focused on getting the message out, about creating real shareholder value, surely the focus on fundamentals is the only argument, isn't it? Yes. I think you touched on something I've been um, really interested in for a long time, is this notion of exponential growth and particularly the kind of growth that is being forced upon you first through a venture capital funding pipeline. And then should you be amongst the very, very few who survives that gauntlet and make it to public markets, it just continues in eternity. Yeah. And I think that wrench is, to some extent, the logic of capitalism, at least in terms of the sort of public markets and so forth. But it's also something you could pick a different route from. But where it's very difficult is when you take other people's money, because you know what? They just don't have the same moral intentions or, or whatever from that, that you might have, right? You will have that about your own money which is how we've ended up being able to run the company in this way, because it's mostly our money that we are gambling with the equity between Jason and I. We sold a, a, a small minority of, of equity as secondaries, actually, to Jeff Bezos of everyone back in 2006. But he got locked into a, a train ticket where he couldn't get off the train and couldn't steer it either. So that worked out to be a, 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 actually a, a good deal even for him. But that's rare. It is rare. What is more common is that you take other people's money and they eventually want it back with interest. Yeah. And when they do, you have to be able to produce those, right? And you get locked into this. The same thing as soon as you hit public markets, you have now quarterly earnings that you have to meet and it creates these incentives that are not healthy or happy at all. But, but it also creates um, false pressure unnecessary pressure. Why do I need yes, to create yes. pressure for my entire sales force yes. to close business prematurely and piss off a bunch of customers yes. who would be quite happy to buy and instead right. drive those people to the competition? Do you know, on average, most organizations spend only $1 closing for every $92 that they um, spend trying to attract the customer, and then they drive them to the competition. It's insane. 
It's not um, good outcomes. And I think that this is why there are such great opportunities if you run things in a different way, right? Like this is how we've been able with such a small company to have such an outsized influence on business and customers and our own profits. And I think it happens at much greater scale too. Warren Buffett is famous for saying like, hey, I just look for great businesses to buy and then hold them, not trade them, hold them. What happens if I buy this company and I hold it for 20 years? you get very different outcomes and you get very different dynamics inside of that outcome. They chase things in a more sustainable way. It doesn't help to, to totally burn the pipeline just to make one quarter because then you also have to make the next one and it never ends, right? Like you, you're never going to be but like, oh, a, well, we're out of quarters. Yeah, it, it's just a hamster wheel. Yes. So if you want to get out of that hamster wheel, I think part of it is that it is just very difficult to be owned by the public. And it's very difficult to be on a treadmill that takes you towards ownership of the public. If you are operating a privately held company, you can have much longer term perspectives. Now, that obviously also has trade-offs. If all the economic growth accrues to just the private owners of companies, eh, what happens to our pension funds? What happens to this? What happens to that, right? So these are complicated dynamics. And I think some of it is for us to realize, you know what, the perfect system does not exist. And there are all these competing interests. And the market is a way of sort of sussing these things out. But for you individually, you can absolutely make different choices on your analysis of this. Hey, do you know what? I don't want to run a public company. I don't want to run a company on the quarterly basis. I want to run a company where I can have the long-term perspective. I can have the calmness. I can have all those things. I just got to own it. And you got to be ready to get rid of slow. The pro- yes. I, I, there's so much impatience. Yes. It's yes. insane. Yes. David, look, we've we've overrun the hour. This has been a fascinating conversation. I would love to have you back if you'd be open to it. Yes, absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much. So, David, how can people get hold of you? If you go to dhh.dk, I have links to everything, all my books, all my businesses, and, and whatever. Excellent. So, David Heinemeyer Hansen. Have I got it there right? You go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, everyone gets my name wrong, so I hate it when I do when I get other people's names <laughs> wrong. So, David Hanemeyer Hun, uh, Hansen, thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. So, this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor Podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please do like, comment, share, and get in touch with David. Get in touch with me. If you want to have a conversation about actually creating a business that's built on strong fundamentals, then please get in touch because both he and I are rabid about this. And we're certainly I'm in the market for helping people to build uh, rock solid careers uh, in profitable businesses. Um, and I know David has done the same. So in the meantime, stay safe, happy selling, get in touch with me, Marcus at loves-last.com. Stay safe. Bye-bye.